0: you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, but before we do that this morning, I wanted to give you 12 lessons or 12 truths or 12 facts uh, about our faith uh, that would be good for you to know, and uh, that you can teach your children if you so choose to. You may say, I don't have any children, or my children are grown, well, uh, they might be good for you too, okay, so it would be a good place Let's start with us, and if you have children, then I want to challenge you to begin to teach your children these these truths, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with my son. He's only two and a half, and um and you, you might say he doesn't even know what he's saying. Hey, let me tell you something. I'm gonna ask you about the Trinity, and you don't know what you're saying either. Okay, uh, the the reality of it is there are a lot of things that we can give answers for that we can't fully explain or fully understand. That's kind of the the mystery of the faith, and certainly when we look at aspects like the Trinity, that's true. So here's a challenge to you in the next thirty days to try to teach your children. Or maybe teach yourself, uh, if you don't know these, uh, maybe it's just between you and uh, your significant other, whoever that may be, that you can uh, can learn these things together. The first one is, why did God make all things? Why did God create mankind? Every once in a while you'll, see, you'll have somebody give what I personally believe is a wrong answer, but uh, they're free to their opinion. But sometimes they'll say, because God was lonely and He wanted a companion. I, I don't really think that to be true. Uh, what the Bible tells us, a Scripture even is, He created mankind and everything for His glory. Ultimately, that's the chief end of our existence. We were created for His glory. The second one, who are the persons that exist? And by the way, this is in, a, uh, in your bulletin. There is a little flyer in there that has all these questions, but you'll have to write the answers yourself. Uh, I'm requiring something out of you if you want these, okay? Uh, number two, who are the persons that exist that we call the Godhead? Who, who, when we say God, what do we mean? Well, first of all, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you will teach your children those two lessons right there, you'll be ahead of most of adults. That we were created ultimately for God's glory, and when we say God, we mean the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. That's a great place to start. You can just do those two. I'm going to try to teach my son those two right there, okay? And, uh, and he can't even talk. So, nevertheless, I want to encourage you on that journey. Number three, what is a covenant? Sometimes I use that language. Sometimes we talk about that, and that's just a good thing for you and your child both to know. A covenant simply is this it's a legal or binding agreement between two parties, between two people. Okay? So, uh, we, now, matter of fact, that's the, the next question. What covenant are we under right now? Anybody know? Somebody yell it out? New covenant, grace. Very good. We're under the new covenant, which is a covenant of grace. So, we're under the covenant of grace. So it's no longer required of sacrifices because Christ was the sacrifice once and for all for us. So we're under the covenant of grace. Um, Number five, what is sin? Well, sin is literally missing the mark. It could be sins of commission or omission. Now, omission might be things that we don't do that we should be doing. When we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind; when we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, there are things that we do that we don't do are sin, and then there are things that we do when we break the laws of God that are sin. Okay? Uh, how is sin forgiven? Well, it's forgiven by the grace of God through the salvation that we requested. Grace is given to us by God through Christ's sacrifice. So, in other words, um, we are saved by grace through faith, based on what Christ did for us. Okay. Uh, And that one's a little harder. I I couldn't think of a way to just shorten that one, though. I apologize. Number seven, can anybody be saved by good works? The answer is no. We'll just make that one real simple. Number eight, uh, what does the word atonement mean? I I use that word quite frequently, particularly since we do communion a lot at this church, not every week, and um, I know that disturbs some people. But nevertheless, uh, atonement means this. It's a Hebrew word, which is kapar, and it literally means covering. It means a covering. You are covered. For example, when I was a, a, a child, uh, I was playing baseball at a place I shouldn't have been playing, and I knocked out the window of, of one of my neighbors. And uh, my dad had to come and atone for that. In other words, he had to come and cover what I might he come and cover my problem. He had to pay for it. And that's literally what atonement means. Jesus has covered our sins, He's paid for it. It's paid in full. So atone. Number nine, uh, what are the sacraments or what do we observe here in our church? Well, we do two. First of all, it's baptism. The second one is Lord's Supper communion. Uh, Same thing, Lord's Supper and communion are the same thing, just different terms that are used for them. Now, what do these sacraments mean? Well, first of all, what sacrament means is this. It is a, a symbol or a ceremony which is done as a sign of remembrance of God's grace. Okay, so it's a symbol or ceremony, however you want to classify it that is done uh, on as a kind of a sign of God's grace. Uh, so that's what a, a sacrament, when we do baptism, we say buried in Christ, raised to walk in a new way of life. It's a symbol of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. We were buried in our sins, but Christ has raised us anew in life. Same thing with communion as we partake of the body. It's uh, substitutionary or symbolic of the body of Christ, the blood of the new covenant. We partake that. And Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. So uh, that's what we do, and that's why we do it. Uh, number 11, Where is Christ now? And I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding on our behalf. He is the intermediary, uh, the intermediary so to speak, uh, in between us and God, uh, because God cannot look upon sin. So Christ has covered us, and we are have full access to God through the person of Jesus Christ. And then number 12, What happens to us when we die? If we know Christ, uh, we instantly, our spirit instantly goes to be with the Lord. And I I believe that also covers those who are too young to make that decision and who are mentally handicapped. And uh, so those go to be with the Lord, and those who don't, then I I believe that there is a type of hell. Uh, And we could all get in a big debate on what that is, but let's just uh, leave it at that And that we want to be with God. Uh, That's where you want to go, I promise, okay? And so you want to know Him as your Savior. And uh, so there's 12 lessons, 12 truths for you to know personally. Start with you. And if you know those, good for you. I want to encourage you to share it with somebody. If you have children, share it with them. If you have a spouse, if you have friends, uh, that's a great one for you to share and for you to know, Okay. So uh, thank you for coming. No, that's not the end. That was for free right there today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, beginning with the 40th verse. Uh, Blessings. As we look at this continual series on blessing. I love this story about this guy. His name is Jairus. And uh, Jairus is actually uh, a Jew. And he's actually a ruler, the Bible tells us, which is synonymous in New Testament for elder. And he's the ruler or elder of a synagogue. Now, what a synagogue was, when any time there were ten Jewish men or ten Jewish families got together, they could form a synagogue. Now, these were first started after the first, uh, after the first temple was destroyed. And the synagogues kind of rose all up all over the nation. Well, not just Israel, but all over. as places where they could go and worship. But then they reestablished the temple, but the synagogues continued. So they were a lot kind of like house churches. For a lack of a better term to use it, there was one main temple where sacrifices were offered and where alms were given, uh, but the synagogue was a place where they'd go for instruction and teaching and community, and uh, so it was kind of like a small group church, kind of so to speak, a home church, uh, a little bit like our small groups, but not exactly. But there would, there would always be appointed for every ten there would be at least one. Well, if there were ten, there would usually only be one elder. And as it got larger, they would take on additional elders or so-called rulers. Well, Jairus is an elder, so to speak, or a ruler. He is the ruling authority of his synagogue. Now, this meant that he had to have the respect and honor of his peers. He also had to have the blessing of of the religious authorities of that day, which would have been either the Sadducees or the Pharisees. So here's Jairus. He is a man of much respect. In his little small sphere, he is a man of authority and power. And he is a man who has been blessed by God. He certainly must know the law and the Torah uh, and probably even the additional books of the Old Testament for him to have this privilege and this honor. But we find Jairus who obviously has been listening to the teachings of Jesus. Now, remember that the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, believe Jesus to be be a renegade heretic at best. He is misleading the people. He is certainly not uh, the Messiah in their estimation, and they simply don't want Him to be because He is really cramping their style. But many begin to hear this message. They begin to hear Jesus preach. And apparently, Jairus must have heard Jesus' messages. He had either heard or literally seen the miracles that Jesus had accomplished. And this was certainly a sign of the Messiah. This was certainly someone not normal. This could not be a heretic. Otherwise, how could he speak for God and perform such acts in the name of God? I think Jairus had come to at least the covert conclusion that this is probably the Messiah. No one has ever spoken as he speaks. And when my so-called authorities or my so-called mentors have taken him on, he has pretty much shut them down pretty quickly. They can't answer his questions, but he always seems to be able to answer theirs if he chooses to. So as he looks at this situation, he's come to the realization that, you know what, this is probably the Christ, but there's also a great price for Jairus to pay if he acknowledges this. But Jairus comes to a situation which is what I call the crisis of belief. And all of us come to this place at some point in our lives. If you're an adult, you perhaps have already come to it. If not, just hang on. It'll come one day. Whether it's the death of someone near to us or someone just gets a hold of us and really shakes our faith a little bit. At some point, we come to that crisis of belief moment. Jairus has come there, and it's come through the suffering of his only daughter, his 12-year-old little girl. And she is violently ill, and she's about to die. And Jairus has a choice to make. He's probably already called for his religious friends, so to speak, to come and pray over her. He's probably already performed whatever medical or medicinal purposes that he possibly could that they had limited access to. But he recognizes my daughter is dying and there is no one here on earth that can stop it. The only person that could possibly be is the one who they say is the Messiah. Jairus comes to the point to where he believes Jairus comes to the point to where if it means giving it all up, losing my status, losing my position, losing my social and economic uh, prosperity, so to speak, I will do it. And that's where we pick up right here in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all expecting Him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of Of the synagogue came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter of about twelve was dying. (coughs) Excuse me. So here we see the situation. Jairus comes. Jairus comes to a place of belief, and when we say belief, it's the same word here. When I talk about believing, in John three sixteen, the Bible tells us probably one of the most popular verses of all Scripture. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed. That Greek word right there, believe, is actually called pisteo. And what it literally means is not just an acknowledgment of, but it means this, it means an adherence to, it means a commitment to. When Jairus comes to Jesus, he is making a commitment. It is in front of everyone. The Bible tells us clearly the crowds are there. The Pharisees and Sadducees have their little spies, so to speak, watching. Jairus is doing this in front of everyone. He comes in belief. He comes to commit at this point. And the first thing that we need to realize to be a blessing to others and to be a blessing as a parent is for us to believe, for us to live and to walk in faith, for us to be in commitment to our King. Secondly, we see that He... Falls at the feet of Jesus. The Old Testament word, or the Hebrew word, literally for worship means to kneel or to bow. To literally to put your face uh, at the feet of someone was the highest honor of reverence. It was usually reserved only for kings or for deities, and that's why it was so. Uh, if you'll remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were supposed to to literally bow down. They were literally to get on their face. And no, that's only something. We would only give that honor and that privilege to God. Jairus does that right here. He worships. He believes, but he not only believes, he comes and he worships with total abandonment. I don't care what anybody else thinks, I don't care what anybody else sees. It doesn't matter. He comes and he worships. The third thing it says is that he pleaded. I looked, I did a word search on that this week, and every instance that the word pleaded is used in Scripture, it is used as prayer. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he pleaded with God to remove his thorn in the flesh, he pleaded three times. He prayed and he asked God to remove it, but yet he never did. Now, most of you can identify with that to some degree, can't you? I mean, we know how the, most of us know how this story ends. It ends on a positive note. But sometimes we have loved ones, we have situations where we pray earnestly, We believe, we worship, and we ask, and it doesn't happen. What about then? Where is God then? And let me say this to you. I've been with people literally hundreds, if not thousands of times. I was a hospital chaplain for a while. did an internship. I've been with people hundreds and and, and almost thousands of times where they are losing someone, where they have experienced the death of a loved one. And can I tell you this? I don't want to pretend to completely understand that. I've lost grandmothers, cousins, those kind of things, friends. But... It's different when it's your child. It's different when it's your spouse. So I want, to, I want to fully recognize that and appreciate that. And no one can completely understand that pain unless they've been right there in that moment with you. And so there's no tried answer that will make you feel all better. And you know, sometimes Jesus chooses to heal, and sometimes He doesn't. That was true in the New Testament. That's true Today. Sometimes God chooses to bless and sometimes the blessing is they go on to be with Jesus. And for them it's complete joy. It's complete peace. It's complete glory. It's really not about them it's about us who are left to pick up the broken pieces. So for them the blessing has already occurred to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ to be a complete peace. But we are left And some of you have been right there where you were left to pick up the pieces of your life. And you've prayed more than three times for God to remove that thorn in your heart. But yet, the truth of it is, there will always be a small pain that resonates within your spirit and within your heart. But you know what? He is still faithful. He is still there. I remember when I was in junior high, I ran track, and this was down in, South Boer Guard Parish down Southwest Louisiana. I was running in a track meet and I, I remember at the time I ran the uh, 400 and the 800. And this uh I ended up winning the 800 and it was the, the last race though and it was a storm came through there and it was rainy and cloudy and dark and I, I guess that's why I won. I, d- I didn't really care uh, cuz I didn't win the next meet. But nevertheless, uh I remember winning that race and you know there there're not a lot of people that show up for track meets anyway. And uh, my dad had come, though, and he was up there. But when it started raining, it looked like everybody pretty much had left. And uh, I remember thinking after I won, golly, I wish somebody could have seen that. I mean, it's not like crack's a big sport. Anyway, I wish somebody actually knew about that. And uh, I remember getting back to, uh, after the meet a few minutes later and saying, man, you should have seen it, Dad. I won. He goes, I saw you. I was there. I said, I couldn't see you up there. He goes, I was there. I was huddled up over in the corner. I was watching. Fast track about five years later, and I'm am close to that same area running in another track meet, my senior year in high school, and I run another race. It's a 200 this time, and and I, I supposedly win it. I'm going to go to state, but then uh, I'm disqualified uh, through a series of events, and I remember how discouraged I was, and my father was the first one down, uh, and I you know, the thing for me that was symbolic for me is that. Uh, you know, my Father was far from perfect. But in my victory, for my, my great sports moment, and that's a pretty sad statement, isn't it? Uh, it wasn't that great. But in my victory and in my defeat, in my loss, He was there. That's true of the Heavenly Father. Regardless of sometimes if we understand, if we feel or we can see, we can have this hope and promise that He is there with us and that He carries us when necessary. That's when we come to the last part, and I'm not going to read this to you. But if you go through the end of the story, as a matter of fact, it's quite interesting that this other woman, who's a Gentile, who haven't, who hasn't even been going to synagogue, who's not even a Jew, shows up and she gets healed. And in the delay, Jairus' daughter dies. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, you know, if you're a Jew and you're thinking, I've been going to church the whole time. I was first in line, and then she cut in line. And why she cut, I lost my daughter. Um, you know, we we. Put that over here today, you know. And some of us, we can't even take it when somebody gets our seat that's not a member. Uh, we don't even like it when uh, people get, our, get the good parking spots in church, you know. And so we go, hey, I've been coming to this church. I've been giving a sermon, and then I don't have a good parking spot around here. I mean, it doesn't take much for us to get too upset uh, a lot of times. So you can imagine where Jairus is at this point. And that's another sermon for another day, by the way. Uh, but nevertheless, Jairus, they come to him, they say, it's too late. Just leave the rabbi alone. Your daughter has died. But Jesus said, I want you to trust me. Believe. Believe. As a matter of fact, he goes to the house, which is another point. Here's Jesus, the heretic. Here's Jesus, the one out of favor with the religious authorities, to come into a Jew's home. That's That right there was full acceptance. That was intimacy. And so as Jairus brought him in the house, all bets are off. It, there's no, there's no. Uh, you know, I'm just kind of checking it out. No, you brought him in the house. It's all been done at this point brings him in the house, and he tells those that bore him, he said, "Uh, she's just asleep. She was literally dead. That's a euphemism, but uh, they heard it as sleep. As a matter of fact, they mocked Jesus and laughed, and he sent them all out. And then we know that Jesus heals her. And what's interesting? Now, uh, Luke doesn't actually record this, but in Matthew and Mark, the Gospel writers record this same story. In Matthew, it's in chapter 9. You can see it if you want to look at it later. Uh, Not only does he tell them this, he tells them this in all three accounts. Now, don't tell anyone what I've done. Commentators abound on what that means. They were, he was trying not to become the Messiah, you know, for them to put him in the place of a literal king. Uh, some think it was because they didn't want him, those others who had laughed at him to experience the blessing. We don't really know. But the second, the second one, I, I want to take a crack at. The second one he says in the Gospels of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, he says this, he says, go give her something to eat. Go give her something to eat. And that seems like a rather odd command. I mean, you know, here, my daughter was dead. You have raised her from the dead. Don't tell anybody and give her something to eat. You don't know what I think. And let me just tell you, this is what I think. Okay? Um, I don't have a be- biblical exposition uh, point that I can point to. I'm just telling you what I think. I believe that God rarely does for us what we can do for ourselves. I think God masters in doing what we cannot do for ourselves. As Oswald Chambers defines it this way. Faith is this. It's doing everything you honestly and ethically can do and trusting God with the rest. What can you honestly and ethically do? Well, can you um, provide for your family? Can you raise your family then? God wants you to do that, okay? He wants you to go out and get a job, and He wants you to make, make enough money to provide for them. And sometimes we cry out to God and go, God, I need more money. God... Give me more blessings. And he's saying, no, what you really need to do is get a smaller house and a cheaper car, okay? It's, that's, that, I've already provided that for you, okay? And so if you make, make good money, that's a blessing of God, that's great, but sometimes we miss the whole point on it. I, I think God wants us to provide, but what God specializes in is what is it that we can't do for ourselves? Well, we you know, we can't save ourselves. We can't be righteous on our own. And here's a situation um, where he, they couldn't physically do anything for the daughter, they had to do it. And that's why I believe in doctors. I believe we do what we can. And then we trust God with what we cannot do. But you know what, what he could do? You know what Jairus and his wife could do? They could physically provide for their child nourishment. They could spiritually provide an environment in a home where that child had the best opportunity to come and to know Christ. I can be obedient to the Spirit of God. I can be faithful in worship. I can be faithful in loving others. You know, so many times we find ourselves uh, claiming scriptures or misquoting and praying for things that are really issues of greed, not need. The Bible tells us that I will meet all your needs according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus, but He never said I'll meet all your greeds according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. But God specializes in meeting the needs that we can't. That's how we know that it's God. So... We're responsible for taking care of our children. We're responsible for providing for them. But God ultimately is responsible for transforming their hearts, transforming their spirits. So what does that do for me? Well, I'll tell you what it does for me as a father. Number one, I want to do, as Walter said, I want to build a hundred-foot fence for my son spiritually so that he has enough evidence and enough opportunity that it is very difficult for him to not recognize the claims of Christ and not to walk with Christ. But at the end of the day, it's God and the Spirit of God. And if you're having difficulties with your children right now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've been a bad parent. Especially spiritually, if they're not following God like you wish that they were. You know what? At the end of the day, It's the Spirit of God that transforms. You do everything you can to create the best environment, but God will yield the increase. Unless the Lord builds the house, the house falls anyway. So for me, that gives me some freedom to do all that I can spiritually, but ultimately, I trust my child to God. So what that means is two sides. First of all, if you've got a great child, and you think you've got a near perfect child? First of all, you're probably deceived anyway, and everybody else doesn't see it that way. But uh, what it also means is that's the blessing of God. It's not all you. It's just a part. Of, uh, there's a big piece of that is just the blessing. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, it's the majority piece. And if your child is struggling right now, you may have done most of what you could. And it's going to be the Spirit of the Lord that has to draw them back. And hopefully, those teachings will resonate in their hearts and the spirit through your prayers, but recognize that you hand your children, that you hand those who come behind us to the Lord. And for me, there's some freedom in that. That God wants me to believe. He wants me to worship. He wants me to pray. And He wants me to be obedient. And that's the greatest gift that I can give my son or daughter.